Welcome to the fifth episode of We Walk the Earth. I'm Sergio Isauro, your host and show producer. This podcast is a joint effort of many talented creatives. We love what we do. If you want to support us, please leave a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and click follow on Spotify. Today's guest is Michael Ventura, author of the book Applied Empathy, the new language of leadership. Michael is an accomplished leader, traditional medicine practitioner and educator who explores the intersectionality of business and personal development through the practice of empathy. He has advised and served as a board member of organizations like Goldman Sachs, Google, The Burning Man Project and Tribal Link Foundation, as well as institutions such as the United Nations and the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Through empathy and connection, he serves individuals and teams seeking support and mentorship at moments of transformation and change. Let's welcome to the show, Michael Ventura. This is We Walk the Earth. Enjoy. Hello, Michael. Thank you for My your time. Pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I've heard about your work through friends. And one of the first things Inti told me, a good friend of us, was that he felt you were like wise grandmother. <laughs> And that stayed with me. He talked a little bit about your traditional medicine practice. And then someone else, like in a different moment, mentioned your book, Applied Empathy, and how it was more business-oriented empathy talk, which for me was very, very interesting because a lot of the business approaches are more practical and not talking a lot about the real inside needs of people. I'm very curious how these two worlds meet. You're in the middle of a lot of things. I see this as very different worlds at first glance. Yeah, thank you for asking and for inviting me on to chat with you. I love that Inti said, uh, I'm like a wise grandmother. It's like, that's probably the highest compliment I've ever received. The different worlds, the professional world and the spiritual world are the same world. The only reason we see them as different is because society has decided to pretend like they're different. And so when we realize that our corporations are just a collection of people and people are a collection of souls, it gets a lot easier to see that. And so when you as an organization prioritize profit and you prioritize uh, competition and you prioritize share value and these sorts of things, and that's all you think about, you lose a lot of the specialness that makes a company special. And that's not to say that you shouldn't pay attention to those things, but often success, value, growth can be side effects of prioritizing people and prioritizing mission and values. And if you prioritize those things, all the successes you want happen often a lot easier. And that's what people tend to forget. And so my work has really been focused on bringing people back to that level of awareness in language that doesn't feel 
outside of the realm of business because business people have a hard wall that you have to break through to have these kinds of conversations. And if I start that conversation by talking about topics that might seem more esoteric, I'm never even going to get invited in the door. And so empathy was a great tool, a great key to unlock that door because everybody, whether you're a business person or a spiritual person or both, knows that empathy is important. And so when we use empathy, which is really just the practice of understanding and getting out of our own heads and really making the effort to understand what makes you, you, then when we do that for enough people, enough colleagues, enough customers, ourselves, we start to unlock the greater understanding that we need to do our best work. Mm. Um, for me, it sounds like asking what the needs of others are instead of trying to push things into their faces. Your book, I see it as a journey of the organization you worked with, of finding out about this key aspects of empathy, no? like a like small journey through different projects that were guiding you to realizing this was such an important thing. You know, you're the first person in all the years I've talked about the book who's realized that, or at least talked about it, maybe others have realized it. You're the first person who's brought up that it was sort of breadcrumbs leading us to it. It wasn't like we knew it. It was one thing after another thing after another thing that just kept nudging us toward this idea. So yeah, very, very accurate, very true. And and I, I guess it was also kind of a journey of getting to know yourselves. There's this concept I like that you mentioned about the whole self and a lot of the, yeah, the key aspects of applied empathy coming from this whole self uh, vision. And for me, at the end, the result was your company helping clients provide better services. But in the process, people were getting to know each other in a deeper level, which was for me, it's like very, very significant. It's It goes beyond just selling something. It's, it's very beautiful. Thank you. That self-understanding is something a lot of people don't think about with empathy because they think about empathy for someone else, right? Doing the work to understand someone other than you. But self-empathy, turning that lens inward and realizing that inside you, there are many selves. There's the different personalities. There's the different wants and desires and voices that we all have. And understanding those, understanding where they come from, understanding which ones you want to drive the bus and which ones you want as a passenger, it's important, right? And the more we understand that, the more we come into a position of responsibility for those selves and uh, and a, a management of them from an essential, hopefully as egoless as possible self, one that just understands what each of them are asking for and why and letting the best ones get the wheel to drive the bus, that helps every other relation in your life work better too. Makes a lot of sense. I've been fumbling around with the idea of when you find your purpose, kind of in the network of life, of society, there's like many levels to it. But like when you kind of find what you can give, um, things start kind of falling into place and you also start feeling more accomplished. I wonder if empathy gave you some feeling 
similar to this? Did you feel it also coming into your personal life and your relationships and stuff? Absolutely. Yes. When when it clicks together, it doesn't just click together in one place. It clicks together in all the places, right? And you realize that that practice of self-understanding and of understanding other people and committing to that will make all of your relationships better. And, you know, how many times have you been in a party or something where one of the U.S. and particularly New York is like one of the versions of this? Within two minutes, in any party in New York City, someone is going to ask you, what do you do? And what a boring question, right? Like, we'll get there. We'll understand. But that shouldn't be the first question. It shouldn't be the first way we have to define ourselves, right? So many people are so much more than their job. And so when we learn how to ask different questions, deeper questions, not necessarily um, questions that make people run away, but definitely sometimes ones that make them just a little more uncomfortable, that's when we get to the good stuff. You know, one of the questions I like to ask people You know how like when you start a Zoom meeting or a regular meeting back when we had regular meetings and uh, and people would have that first two, three minutes of just little banter. Oh, what did you do this weekend? Oh, you know, I went and did this. I saw my my children play baseball and, bah, 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 and everyone has a little small talk and then we get down to work. So they say, how are you? Usually, like, oh, how are you? Right. And you say the same thing you said 10 times today, right? Because you've been asked, how are you 10 times? So it's like, oh, I'm okay. I'm a little tired. I stayed up late last night, whatever, right? It's, Same shit over and over. What's it like to be you today? Asks the same question, but you get a much more interesting answer. People, because it lands on their ears different. They haven't heard what's it like to be you today. They've heard how are you? So they think about it an extra second and they look for a different answer and then they bring something else forward and then you're having a real conversation. So just little changes like that really make a big difference in how to sort of get at the, the roots of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a part in, in your book. I think there's some questions uh, related to each of the archetypes. There's one question that says, what question makes you most uncomfortable? Um, and that really, really stayed with me. I think when we ask, how are you? And we're like this, like small talk questions just to like small icebreakers. We're never expecting people to get deep. You're expecting people to kind of be a little bit fake because you're like, how are you? But I, I really don't want you to like loathe out something on me. We need to get past that a little bit, I think. It's an empathy thing also. You're working with people, so you really want to know how they are like for real. And learning how to listen. I think that's another thing we overlook a lot is that listening is an active verb. It's not passive. We have to practice listening and listening in all ways, right? Not just listening with our ears, which is important, but also listening with our eyes. How does this person's body language present? Are they uncomfortable? Are they leaning in? Are their eyes open? Right? Are they excited? Can you tell they're really telling you something? Or are they sort of like just kind of on autopilot, observing how you're receiving that information? A lot of people half listen. A lot of people half listen while the other half is planning what they want to say and just waiting for you to take that little pause, that little breath. And then they want to jump in and say their thing. And so there was a study I read years ago about how, uh, how small of a fraction of a second humans allow in breaks before someone else interjects their point in a conversation. It's less than like a half a second. Like all it is is just a little and then boom, someone else is in. Boom, boom. And what happens when we give the spaciousness for conversation, for pauses, for those little moments to breathe and let people think? A lot of the South Asian cultures and a lot of the Sub-Saharan African cultures have a very natural tendency to allow that space. It's respectful. 
to allow that space. But it makes people who are not familiar with that feel uncomfortable. Oh, I've got to fill in the gap. I've got to fill in the air. I've got to say something. And it's just, it's an interesting practice to get into. People think that like you're tired or something sometimes when you do it because they don't understand. No, I'm actually just giving space for the conversation to land. Yeah, I think it also probably comes from like productivity culture where we need to be filling out spaces to feel we're doing something your work with traditional medicine and studying ancient uh, cultures and ways, how do you think it fits into the more practical side of your life? There's a lot of wisdom that comes from way, way back. So how do you feel it fits? So I think that the, the way it fits is like the way an old childhood memory just feels familiar because the wisdom that these traditions have is stuff that's been in our bones and in our blood for centuries. But like a memory from when you were five years old, you don't think about it every day. But when you're reminded of it and you go back to it, it feels like it's so deeply a part of you. And that moment on the playground or that conversation with your mom, whatever it was when you were five, had led to this, led to this, that led to this, that led to the person you are sitting here right now. And when we look at those ancient teachings, when we look at what these traditions have held on to for thousands of years, it's like reawakening an old yeah. memory in ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, I would imagine that when you approach some people that are more practical thinking and more business oriented, it might seem a little bit off or weird for them. But at the end, if they accept it, do you think it's because they tap into these memories? I, yes, I think it, that's a good way of asking the question. If they think it's weird or they think it's uncomfortable, it's because it's pressing up on a pressure point in them. It's showing them something they don't want to address. And then one of two things happens. Either they walk away because they're not ready to address it, don't want to address it, and that's okay. You know, they might want to do it tomorrow. They might want to do it in 10 years from now. They might want to do it in two lifetimes from now. I can't tell you which one. But if you want to walk through the door, these are interesting things to think about. The other one are the people who walk through the door. And they say, you know what? That is interesting. And wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have those kinds of conversations and that kind of an awareness at work where we spend more time than we do with our families? The average American person spends somewhere between eight and nine hours a day at work. They probably have a little commuting time when we commuted now, probably a little less. They have sleeping time. So how much time actually gets spent with their families? They spend more time with their colleagues often. And so what can we do to make that time at work as meaningful for your personal development as it is for your professional development? Yeah, when reading through your book, I couldn't avoid thinking, well, if this was applied to companies, but also government organizations, social organizations, even art collectives, you know, like you can apply it to everything. And it's, I don't know, it automatically takes away the abuse part of our behavior. You know, like abusing our environment, abusing uh, people's time, abusing, I don't know, communications. It kind of levels out because you tune in with the needs of what's around you. What's a good way of putting it? It's almost like having like a little, when you, when you train that muscle, the empathy muscle, and it's not a real muscle, but it's a good metaphor, this practice in ourselves, when that gets more capable and that gets more 
utilized on a day-to-day basis, it's like having a little alarm bell that goes off. I'm not doing enough here. I could be doing more. I could be listening better. I could be asking better questions. I could stop thinking about what it would be like for me and ask what it is like for them. You know, that's one of the things that it's a little bit of a side road, but it's a good distinction. So there's lots of different kinds of empathy. There's three different kinds. So the first kind of what most people think about when they think about empathy is effective empathy. And effective empathy is like golden rule. What would I want if I was you? Not good enough, in my opinion, because I am not you. Like, let's say we walk into, I walk into a bar and you and I know each other and I see you at the other side of the bar and you've got a sad face on and you, you know, you're drinking your drink by yourself and you don't look like you're in a good mood. And I say, wow, if that was me, what would I want? I'd want to go over and I'd want to have my friend hit me on the back and say, Hey, are you okay? And try to like lighten my mood. So I walk over and I do that. And you look up and you're like, bro, not right now. I just need like some time to myself. So why didn't it work, right? That was empathy. I put myself in your shoes and I did what I would want, but it doesn't work. The other kind of empathy, there's also a type called somatic, which we won't talk about now, but there's a third type, cognitive empathy, which is what applied empathy really focuses on, is not what would I do in your shoes, but what would you do in your shoes? What do you need? And so... What you have to do in order to get to cognitive empathy is you have to do two things. One, you have to be willing to ask difficult questions. And two, you have to be willing to change your behavior. So the same example, I walk over to you, I see your sad. Hey, Sergio, everything okay? No, I'm having a horrible day. I just got into a huge fight. I just need 10 minutes, man. I'm just like processing some stuff. Okay, no problem. Why don't we meet up in a half hour? We'll go for a walk. Okay, thank you. That would be great. Okay, cool. I'll see you in a half hour. Done. What a different experience, right? That's the practice. Yeah, I like how you mentioned in the book, this is hard work. Sometimes it's even harder to be empathic, that it's not like uh, you start doing it and everything gets fixed. And it makes sense. You're like really having to do the work and asking the tough questions and also getting some answers that you probably don't want to hear. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. But at the end of this work, the rewards are very good, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, you know, anything that takes a lot out of you often gives you a lot of good rewards too. You know, you exercise. Not everyone likes to exercise. I don't love exercise exercising. Um, but I know if I do it, it's going to make me feel better later down the line, you know? So these, these kinds of things that sometimes, you know, we think about as like being a little difficult in the beginning are some of the best things for us. Do you still catch yourself sometimes having to remind yourself like, damn, I'm not being empathic. Like, wow, I really need to check on this. Every day, every day. There is no finish line on this race. There are always moments that we could be better, that we could be thinking differently, that we could be asking better questions. We have a tendency as humans to default to the easy path, right? It's like, you know, when you when you see a part of a road or a field that's just walked on more, and so it's a little smoother and a little easier to walk on, we always have a tendency to walk on those things already because they're already smooth, right? Why would I take the rocky, uncomfortable path? But if we take the rocky, uncomfortable path enough, it starts to smooth out too. And then it's easier to walk on that road. We don't have to drift back to the other one. But those first, those first times take a long time sometimes to smooth it out. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful metaphor. I guess now that you mentioned that we are very caught into this easy path that at the end are not the easiest, you know, they're just being walked on for so long that they appear to be easy because we're not challenging ourselves conceptually and in our minds to realize and accept we have a choice and we can yeah make choices and differ from the normal, if you want to call it like that. Yeah. And that is 
the difference between feeling okay, I guess, and feeling satisfied, feeling, feeling like you actually accomplished something, you know, we can go to bed neutral all the time, but sometimes it's nice to go to bed feeling more than neutral about the day you've had and the work you've done and the questions you've asked and the people you've helped. Yeah, it's a good thing we humans have, but also can backfire our ability to get used to things. Uh, it's good, like it makes us survive, but also we get used to feeling not very good. And then that becomes the standard and that becomes our reality. And yeah, we don't do much to change it because we think that's our best. Well, we don't think it's mostly unconscious, but like we are in this numbness state constantly. Yeah, it's a nice thing to do. It's not always easy, but it's a nice thing to do to try to just pick a habit every once in a while that you're willing to break, that you're willing to change. You know, like if you feel like you've been in a pattern of maybe having too many drinks during COVID, we've all probably had a couple too many drinks all the time. Like, can you give yourself a, uh, you know, a break? Can you say, I'm going to take a week off? It's not that hard. You could probably do it. But is it the easiest thing to do? Because no, I'm going to go see someone next week in two days and we're, you know, we're going to have a couple of beers have some dinner but like that little shift or i'm gonna go to bed an hour early every night ah oh, but i know but like there's this thing i want to do before bed yeah but maybe if it just like shift the little behavior a little here or i'm gonna do intermittent fasting or i'm gonna do this or i'm gonna do just little things to cultivate will because when we have stronger will we can accomplish more but to your point those easy things are easy for a reason right and so it's okay to stay up an hour late it's okay to just have that extra beer it's okay to do these other things because it's just the easier but it doesn't mean that they all have to be better for you or like some life-changing thing it's just about training the mind to learn how to work with more will going to do this differently right now and i'll have a beer again in a week from now but i'm going to change i'm going to do a little something different just to get that muscle going just to not be asleep all day going through the motions and doing the same thing i always do yes like overwriting little by little like building up because we can't get rid of some habits without getting new ones. It's not like you just uh, select and delete. You need to like actually change the behavior. I want to ask you a little bit more about your traditional medicine practice. This kind of things in my experience is not like you go to a school and you do like like yoga teacher training where you go and do a hundred hours and then you have a, a little paper that says you can do it. So Like, how can you talk a little bit about your journey into this and, and like how it got into your life? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so I started my first business when I was 22 years old and I didn't know anything about running a business because I was 22 years old. And so um, I did the best I could, but I made a ton of mistakes. I didn't have a lot of people around me on the day to day that I felt I could go to to talk about this sort of stuff that I was dealing with, the stress, the anxiety, the worry. You know, I had 30, 40 employees at some points. I would walk in the door, I would see 30 or 40 people. I saw 30 or 40 people who had to pay their rent every month, 30 or 40 people who had to figure out how to pay for grocery bills. And so I would take that on and I would say, it's my responsibility. I'm going to figure out how to do this. And that stress got overwhelming. And one day, I was changing the water cooler in the in the office and uh, I just remember like everything went white and I opened my eyes and I was laying on the ground and I had herniated two discs in my back and I couldn't walk. It was an excruciating pain, the worst pain I've ever felt. And I didn't know what to do. 
And eventually I got someone to help me get a, get up and get to my chair. Then we, someone went out and bought a cane, brought me back a cane so I could actually like stand up because I didn't want to call the ambulance or I was like, I can, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And it was, I lived uh, like a five minute walk from the office. I said, I'm just going to get home, lay down. Maybe it'll feel better in the morning. Took me one hour to walk five minutes. I get home. I'm just in the worst pain. I lay down, I fall asleep. I wake up in the morning. It's just as bad. So I go to the hospital and they say, we want to do surgery. We want to put rods in your back. We're going to do spinal fusion. We're going to be giving me all these options that sound crazy. I remember I'm 26 years old at the time. And they're like, you know, you'll have pain the rest of your life, but it won't be as bad as it is now. And you'll be able to walk or do things. But, you know, this is fucked up and you're you're not you're not going to have a good situation. I said, that sounds terrible. I need to see if there's other ways of fixing this. And this was at a time in the world when acupuncture and energy work and things like that were not like what it is now. You know, this was nearly 20 years ago and um, they were around, but it wasn't like we see it today. And so a friend of mine recommended I go get acupuncture and he told me a guy that he knew and I went and I got it. And if I walked in and my pain was at a hundred, I left at 99, you know, I didn't leave at zero by any stretch, but I something like there was a crack of light coming through the door. And so I went back and then I went back again and then I went back again. And after like the fourth or fifth time, he said, I don't think you have a back problem. I think you have a stress problem. And he said, and the stress is showing up in your back, but I actually think you need to change the way you live your life. How do you manage stress? Drugs and alcohol and things like that. He goes, that's probably not the best way to manage your stress. Because do you meditate? No, I don't meditate. I can't sit still. My mind's always going. My body's always going. I can't. You drink a lot of coffee. Yeah, I drink two, three cups of coffee a day. Great. Yeah, this, but you know, like everything you could say, it's like, yeah, not good, not good, not good, not good. So he said, let's start to change your lifestyle. Let's start to change the way you think about things. Let's start to change your mindset. And so he recommended I learn Tai Chi, found a Tai Chi teacher, started training with them, started doing more Taoist meditation, started getting more acupuncture, started treating my body better. Six, seven months later, I had no back pain and I never had the surgery. And so I realized in that moment that that is a path I need to stay on. And what happened after that is the thing that happens to a lot of people when they find alternative medicine creating an unlock in their healing journey, which is then you go on the buffet line of alternative medicine and you go get a Reiki session and you go get rolfing and you take plant medicine ceremonies often in the jungle and you go do this and you go do that and like you try it all, which is great. I think it's a great way to explore all these things that have been around for a long time. But what if you ate a buffet every day? What if every day when you came to sit down, you had shrimp and chicken and, you know, rice and, and ice cream and like you'd feel sick, right? So you have to, at some point, pick a lane. And so after the journey on the buffet line, I picked two that worked for me. It was the traditional Chinese medicine path and then an indigenous path. And both of these paths and the indigenous path, I'll talk about in a moment about what it is, but both of them presented themselves to me. You know, they always say, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so the teachers appeared for me and they worked with me and they treated me with compassion and they saw the person I was trying to be. And after a few years of practicing with both of these people for myself and getting myself better, I had a moment where I realized this really worked and I'm better. I could have been dead by this point if I wasn't taking care of myself. Now, all of a sudden, I feel like some of the best shape of my life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, not just physically. So I asked them, would they teach me? 
And they both in their own way basically laughed at me. And I was like, why are you laughing at me? And they said, we've been teaching you for four years, man. There's no, there's no degree. There's no paperwork we're going to give you. You've been in class. Your first patient is you. And it always has to be you. Otherwise, what are you going to do to help somebody else? And then the light bulbs really clicked on. Then I knew, okay, now I understand what we're here to do. And so then I made it my work to really understand this work. And so Master Ru, his name is Yuan Ru. He is a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. He's a Taoist monk. He's a teacher of Qigong, which Qigong is uh, qi. We've all heard life force, right? That thing that powers us internally. Gong is circulation. So how do we move that life force? How do we move it inside ourselves, And how do we move it inside someone else through touch, through intention, through will? And then the other tradition is my teacher, Donia Leova. And Donia Leova is a curandera. She's from a little town in, called Quetzal. And she's a Nawa Indian. And the Nawas are, you know, Aztec descendant and really are, you know, it's bush medicine. And in Donia's tradition, known as the tradition of the grandmothers, they pass it on, one grandma teaches one granddaughter, and they skip a generation because your mom can't just teach you because your mom has to be a disciplinarian, your mom has to put you to bed every night, your mom has to help you with your schoolwork, your mom has to do all these other things that moms have to do. Big job. But grandma can just be love. Mm -hmm. And so grandma teaches you how to do this work because this work comes from a place of heart. And so Donia Leova, quick story about her, but I know this is a longer answer than you may have bargained for, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, so, so Donia was living in Quetzal and in the 1980s, there was a, a group of people in the Yucatan who were there for a yoga retreat. And this is, remember, 1980s, this wasn't like, you know, the way it is today. It wasn't like Gwyneth Paltrow there, you know? And so they're in the Yucatan and the teacher who's there to do this class, his name is Yogi Bhajan. And Yogi Bhajan was really the person who brought Kundalini Yoga to North America. Yogi Bhajan was very ill. And Yogi Bhajan's number two, this guy's right-hand man, was a man named Gurudev. And Gurudev grew up in Chiapas. And he said, what you need is grandma medicine. He was in the hospital, his kidneys were failing. And he said, we need to get you a Cordera. I'll be back. And he leaves. He goes out into the jungle and he starts asking around. He goes to this village and he goes to that village. And you know they're all telling him to go to different places. Finally, he lands in Quetzal and he finds Donia Leova. And he tells her the story. And by the time he's finished with the story, she's got a bag on her back. And she's like, let's go. And she gets there and she puts her hands on him. And for a few days, every day, she sits in his hospital room, basically giving him energetic dialysis, helping him heal through her tradition. And he gets better. And Yogi Bhajan tells her, this is amazing. I don't know what you did, but you've healed me. And she laughs. She goes, no, you healed you. You just needed a little extra help. And he says, well, what can we do now? I don't want you to disappear. Will you travel with me? Will you be a part of my team? She said, no, I got a family, man. I got a village I take care of. I can't come with you. But, you know, maybe every couple of months, maybe every couple time you pass by Mexico, or if you need me to come somewhere, you let me know and I'll go. And so for years, they get on this rhythm, traveling together. She's part of his team when they need her, but otherwise she's home. And when Yogi Bhajan is dying many years later, he tells Donia, look, your medicine is very powerful and it can't just hide in the jungle. You need to find another student and you'll find that student in New York. New York will be a second home to you. 
and you have to promise me you will always take care of the Kundalini community in New York. So she starts traveling to New York once or twice a year. She starts treating people there. I get an email. I'm not a Kundalini practitioner at the time, although I am a student of that world now. I get a phone call from a friend. She says, hey, there's this woman coming from Mexico. I saw her a few years ago and she beats the shit out of you. She's so strong and forceful. And she, you know, she really like just takes all of the stuff you're holding and just breaks it down. You should really check her out. I think you'd like it. And this was when I was on the buffet line. So I said, okay, sure, I'll try. And I went and saw Dona Leova and she beat the hell out of me. Just like getting at all those blocks, all those little points that I've been holding and protecting and making sure nobody ever gets to and sees because I'm strong. And then this persona that I was developing about you know being okay, even though there was more work to do. And she found all of them, cracked them all up. And at the end, I'm you know crying and I'm a mess, but I feel amazing. And she said, okay, come back tomorrow. And I looked at her translator in the room because uh, my Spanish was terrible at the time. It's still terrible, but it's even worse. And I looked at her translator and I said, did she just say come back tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, she never tells people to come back that quickly. Let me figure it out. And they talked really fast and I couldn't follow it. And he said, okay, here's the deal. I've been doing this with her for 15 years. I've never seen her do this, but basically she said that she knows you're looking for a teacher. And if you want a teacher, you can come back tomorrow and she'll teach you. And so I came back the next day and she made me her second granddaughter. And so I've been training with Dona Leova for years. And then she basically, at one point, we were working together on somebody. And she said, Don Miguel, you do this one. And she walked out of the room. And that's as much of a graduation ceremony as I got. <laughs> but I knew at that point that she basically said, you've got it now. You don't need me. You go do it. And then we worked together. And, you know, she's still very much a part of my life. And we speak regularly. But yeah, that's the long answer to how these worlds entered my life. That's beautiful. It's beautiful how we are in this epoch of the buffet line, you know, like everything's available for us in every way. But like in the spiritual, anything you want is out there, like to feed your needs, no? Like so many approaches. And I think, I mean, I would dare to say they, all of them or most of them have the same goal, kind of, which is like, Going into yourself and connecting with what's around you at the end in a like very transparent and fluid way, like making the energy flow. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people think like, oh, this thing is better than that thing. And oh, if you haven't tried Reiki, you don't know about what the, you know. when you go in an ice cream shop and you look at all the flavors, right? And there's chocolate and there's vanilla. And yeah, maybe you feel like having strawberry today or the dulce la leche one looks the best. Fine. It's all ice cream. And that's what this is. All of these modalities, all of these traditions are about getting you to the ice cream you want. And so as long as you as long as you know you want ice cream, they're all there for you. And you should try them, but then you should sort of pick your flavor. Yeah, that's another thing. I was talking about this with a friend recently. There is a lot of unhealthy ego in the spiritual communities. But we were talking about like a real grandma, a real teacher, a real, a real guru, they are always very modest and they are never competing with other traditions on the opposite. They are acknowledging everything is part of the same. And we're in a very beautiful time where, you know, like there's these gatherings of teachers of different traditions and they come to the same place and they are exchanging knowledge and laughing and making fun of themselves. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's so beautiful to see that these people that have so much wisdom are so open 
it fills my heart to just think about it. And it always brings the idea of stepping out of my unhealthy ego, you know, like, um, I think we, it's very important for us to realize that in anything we do, we should not be trying to teach. We should always be trying to learn. And even like the great, great grandmothers, like uh, the shamans here in Mexico and everything, they are always learning and learning from young people, learning from even people that are not even spiritual, like considered, yeah. you know, it's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. The, the laughing is a perfect example. Like the there is so much joy and freedom that a lot of the teachers I've had have shown that point of some of the most agonizing stuff that you might be going through. And they just laugh because they're not laughing to be malicious. They're laughing because it's okay. Let it go. Drop it. It's all a story. You'll get through it. And they soften the space with that lightness that they have because it can feel so heavy when you're going through it. And You know, there's an alchemy in the way they, they operate that's almost unconscious because they've just been yeah. able to be yeah, so yeah. free for so long. Yeah, there is a big part of the wisdom is acknowledging the mystery because wisdom is not knowing facts. I think it's quite the opposite, you know, like acknowledging the mystery and acknowledging the need for flexibility and the ever-changing flow of everything. Um not accumulating knowledge as we see it normally. Yeah, um, exactly right. Yeah, and this is a quality teachers and gurus and grandfathers, grandmothers have, I think, acknowledging that we will never know everything mm -hmm. or nothing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you asking the, the questions and letting me share a little of the story. It's, uh, you know, my story's like everyone else's story. We're all kind of trying to walk each other home, as Ram Das says. So we can do it together. It makes a life worth living. That was Michael Ventura. For more information on his work, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. In today's Poetry Forest, Virginia Vigliar shares with us a phrase written by herself. I am afraid. 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 Skin exposed, heart on the ground, for everyone to see, to touch, but only mine to heal. I am afraid. 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 We Walk the Earth is a Nodalab original and is produced by me, Sergio Isauro. The music in this episode was produced by Tejedor. Poetry Forest by Virginia Vigliar. 
Editing by Miguel Andrade. Mixing by Aldo Leiva. Executive Production by Jorge González. If you like this podcast and wish to support us, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. This is We Walk the Earth. Thank you for listening. Until next time.